Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Um, yeah, there's a sermon this morning. Um, it's uh, it's going to be one of the, like, I keep saying every every Sunday, like, oh, it's going to be a doozy. And it's like, you're kind of wearing out the word. You know, it's like, this is just what it is. You know, this is normal. Like, we're waiting for the nice, easy, light, comfortable sermon. It's But it's revelation. And so uh, there's going to be a couple parts in here that it's going to shake us. It's going to be one of those, uh, kind of like a few weeks ago when I had people coming up, I've never heard that, and then you go home and you call all your you know, ministry people to make sure that I'm not walking in heresy, and, and it's good, because I'm doing the same thing. I'm calling Matt Arnold. Matt, am I walking in heresy right now? So if you see him walk up, get up and walk out, all of us walk out, right? <laughs> Just go, right? Just go. No. Revelation chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, please read along with me. Then... I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. This is Jesus. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And it is these who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. Verse eight, another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image, if you remember the abomination of desolation, that's what that reference is to. So if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment, not torture, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. As we're walking through Revelation, we've been talking the last few weeks that chapters 10 to 14 are parenthetical. It's the parentheses. It's the, hey, we're going to pause on the chronological kind of journey that we are on. We're going to pause there. And 10 to 14 are just filling in details over the whole. And so what we're seeing here in 14 is this victory kind of triumph at the end of tribulation. Even though we haven't walked through the bowls and the significance of what those are, it's giving us the end result in view first before we walk through this last three and a half years, also called the Great Tribulation. All of it is the tribulation. All of it is God's wrath. But now we're seeing the full strength of God's wrath. And so we see, uh, again, we're going to be filling in details so we can't, we got to lay down the chronology of it, which is sometimes hard for us. Right? We want to, even the Gospels are like that. We want to read the Gospels and see Jesus' life, but we want it nice and ordered, right? He was born in Nazareth. He went to this elementary school. He played football. And then he went to this college. When he graduated, he met that girl. There's like a lot of heresy. No. And so we want that. We want that nice biography of it. And the problem is, is that's not the intent of the authors. Nor for John here is he trying to give us this nice, perfect timeline of all these events. So we, you know, we're not trying to raise uh, Bible scholars. All scripture is profitable so that we would walk in good works. That we're discipling one another through the word. This isn't Bible college class. This is equipping of the saints. And the word of God is profitable for that for the teaching, the training, the reproof, the correction, so that we would walk in every good work that he has prepared beforehand, even this word here. Because what we see at the end, this end result, this victory view, is the 144,000 that he sealed at the very beginning of the tribulation. So at the very beginning of that seven-year period that we're talking about God seals 144,000. And we kind of asked that question back then, like what's the seal, what is that? We see a little bit more significance, understanding that it's the name of the lamb and the name of God on their forehead. 
And that's why it's bold, because I'm just ready. I want to give God all the space possible to write his name. I don't want to have to scrunch it in there. Like, I want an adequate canvas for him. And so they're sealed. And then if he sealed 144 at the very beginning of the tribulation, and how many are standing with him at the end of tribulation? 144,000. He lost none. And that sealing, obviously, showing the perseverance that God can uh, protect and bring about all of those that have that seal upon them. And in not just their physical lives. Because for us as the church, you know, like we, we struggle with that. Why won't God heal me? Why won't God heal my family or this? And we, and we think death is the worst, physical death is the worst thing possible. See, it's not just a physical life that God brings a perseverance in the 144 but he lost none to the rebellion against him. That they didn't, you know, when we see this, when this terminology talking about them is, is virgins, it's a reference to their purity. That they lost none in their purity, that they continued in righteousness and holiness. And so for us as the church, even though we know that we're not going to be a part of this tribulation experience, we can still have implications for us even today. Because if, if Jesus, with the sealing, and, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says, and if these 144 are sealed to persevere in their holiness and righteousness, does Jesus not care about the holiness and the righteousness of his bride? Guys, do you care about the holiness and the righteousness of your bride? Or do you want her to have a smeared character and just running after whatever of her desires and be like, oh yeah, you know my wife. She just runs after whatever she wants and has no morality about her and she just walks in immorality. Like Nobody would say that. That Jesus has the same heart for the bride that he does here, that he wants us to walk in holiness and righteousness. He wants us to walk in obedience. Because sometimes in the church, let's, uh, let's have some fun here. Sometimes in the church, we, so, uh, we, we make sin so common. And we just make it act like it's a, just a normal thing of our everyday lives. Oh yeah, I'm struggling with pornography. Yeah, You're not even struggling with it. You're just getting beat up by it. Struggles to say you're fighting against it. Oh, you know, I, yeah, I struggle with gossiping. It just kind of happens, though. You get the girlfriends together, and we just start talking. And we say all these things, and we just take sin, and we act like they're normal, and we profane them, and they just make them a, a normal, everyday aspect of our life. And it's like, when has the church ever been commanded to just accept the reality of our struggle with sin or the presence of sin in our life? How many times is Paul telling us, flee from sexual immorality, put on the armor of God, protect yourself, fight against this, like put your fist up. I got boxers in my family, right? I know this doesn't look like it, but I was adopted in. No, <laughs> but they, I mean, the first thing that they would teach you is defensive to keep your gloves up. You're not going to be, you're not going to last many rounds if you're just walking around with your hands around your waist. Get your gloves up. But how many times in the church do we just, we just normalize it? Oh yeah, it's just a struggle with sin, you know, because nobody's perfect, right? We all got our stuff. How sad 
that we have diluted the blood of Jesus to VBS Kool-Aid and think that there's not power in the name of Jesus. Because what we see here is the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. This is the victory scene of the end of tribulation. And we as believers and followers of Jesus, those of us in the church, we understand the cross in the empty grave and we say these things, but we need to really internalize it and make it and apply it to our lives. That we're not fighting for victory. It's the wrong fight. I gotta do these right things. I gotta, I gotta fight this battle because I, I need to get victory with Jesus. No, 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 you're not fighting for victory. You're, fri- you're fighting from victory that Christ accomplished everything on the cross and we have the empty grave, the empty tomb as a, as a symbol, as, a, a, that it's as if God looked at Jesus and said, that's your receipt. Yes, paid in full and we have the receipt of that, that he was raised to first fruits that the grave shows that that was an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. So we get to operate, we get to live, we have our normal everyday lives from victory. And so let's play that out. So if you remember a couple uh, Sundays ago, I talked about that kind of real nice Christianese spiritual little saying that tripped me up a lot when I was a teenager. God won't give you more than you can handle. Doesn't that sound good? Right, like warm cocoa on a snowy day, just nice and warm. But you search the scriptures and what do you find? Not that. And the moment God gives you something that you can't handle, now you're in this conflict because now you're thinking, well, this is something I can't handle, but God gave it to me, so who's the liar here? (laughs) The person that taught you that. See, the real verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, says that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but to provide a way of escape. Ooh, so what's the word of God saying? that every one of us, when we are at the fork in the road of walking in righteousness, holiness, walking in obedience to Jesus, or we say yes to our sin, God provided a way of escape. That it is available to all of us to walk in righteousness. We just don't. But thank the Lord that his grace is sufficient when we do fail. But God has provided a way of escape for us. There is true victory over our sins. So if you're here this morning and, you're, and you have that mentality of, oh, I just, this is something I struggle with and it'll never be gone, you don't understand the word of God. You don't understand the victory that we have in Jesus. That there is nothing, there is no sin that is too great for the cross. Jesus never looks at us and says, oh yeah, that's that. I created you with that sin. There you go, buddy. You're just gonna have to struggle with it. Good luck. No victory here. I, the, the blood was like 99% effective. Sorry, I know the church is saying 100%. No, no, no. 100%, there is victory in Jesus. And so if you're struggling through a sin issue, understand we are operating from, from victory, that we see this triumphant in review result of victory. And so even knowing that this is a future thing, it inspires us, it encourages us, it leads us to continue to walk in that victory. Why? Because we know that our God wins. But how many times do we walk in life as if we don't really know if this is how it's gonna turn out? How many, like going back to the boxing ring, 
I don't know who's going to win in the end. It's going to be a good fight. We'll see. You know, maybe he gets knocked out in the third round. Maybe it's going to go the distance. We don't know, but we'll, we'll have to go to the scorecards. We have the scorecard. <laughs> we have the end of the story. We see that the same 144 sealed at the beginning are standing in Mount Zion with the Lamb, with Jesus in victory. So why would we think that Jesus does not have that same victorious hearts for his bride? Walk in the new life that we have in Christ. Take off the old. Walk in the new. The old is gone, the new has come. So whatever sin that you are struggling with, you need some accountability, you need some guardrails, but more than anything, you need to understand the promise that we have in Jesus, that there is victory available for every single one of us. Is it going to be hard? Is it going to be difficult? Absolutely. You thought this was going to be easy to overcome the sin? Look at the cross. You thought that was easy? We just want to wake up one day and all of a sudden lust is gone from our hearts? Look at the cross. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a struggle. But it's worth it. And the new life that we find and we have in Christ is worth it. And whatever we would give up of our old life, it's worth it for the new life that we have in Christ. And so I hear the words of Jesus when he was talking to his disciples and he was praying for them in John 17. He says, all of these that you have given me, I've lost none. And the same for the 144 here. Because what we're going to see at the end of this chapter is this triumphal entry. And we think back to when Jesus was walking into Jerusalem that last week, and that's that Passover, that's Holy Week, that's how we celebrate Palm Sundays, that victorious ride into Jerusalem. But there's absolutely going to be one more triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's what we're seeing at the end of the chapter. That Jesus walking in victory now, not to go to the cross, but to the throne. And we hear the 144 descripting of them is that they are the, you know, the redeemed of the earth. They have not defiled themselves with women, that they are virgin, and it's a picture of their purity in general. I was having a conversation with a young man on our mission trip, so if you see anybody with the nice little Big Creek shirts, anything like that, ask them. Don't go up to them and say, oh, how was your trip? How did you see God move and work? in and through you in Kentucky. Because if you just ask, hey, how was your trip? It was good. Nobody died, right? It was good. Ask how the Lord impacted and moved in their hearts, in and through them. And so I was talking with a, a, a young person on this trip, and we were talking about purity as a single young man, teenager, compared to me as an old, out of shape, bald pastor, said, the fight for purity is the same, my man. It doesn't matter that you're single, that I'm married, the fight for purity, I'm still in it, I'm with you. And so we see these 144, that they won that fight of purity, and it reinforces even the connection that these 144 Jewish evangelists are Israel. It enforces that connection of the 144 with Israel, because in the Old Testament, more than a dozen times, and if you want to geek out, come to me and I'll give you all the references. Israel is referred to in the Bible as the virgin daughter of Zion or the virgin of Israel. 
And so it's, it's, it's a, an ascription to their purity in general. So he's looking at these 144 that they have walked for these seven years in purity, and now they are with the Lamb in this victorious scene on Mount Zion. What's it say about them? They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. See, a lot of times we trip up and we wonder about salvation. How was Abraham saved? How was David saved? What about, you know, we, we, we definitely know the church. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and Christ alone. But then we look at these tribulation saints. How are they saved? Salvation has always been the same. Salvation has always been by faith in Christ alone, period. And you can look at uh, Hebrews 11, and it's going to walk through all the different periods of human history, right? Uh, another word for that would be dispensations. Don't get caught up on it. Just different segments of human history where God interacts and, and deals with his people uh, in different ways, and there's an expectation. So it's obviously how he dealt with people before Abraham would be different after Abraham because of the promise. Before the law, after the law from Moses, that was different. Before the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, after the giving of the Holy Spirit of Acts 2, God's interacting with his people in different ways. But you go to Hebrews 11, and what do you see? Almost from the very beginning, the early parts of Genesis, by faith, Enoch. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. And you see that through whatever period of time, whatever dispensation it is, it's always been by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous man shall live by faith. That there's been no other mode of righteousness that we have other than faith in Christ alone. That's why Paul wrote it again in Romans 1, that the righteous man shall live by faith. And so even these tribulation saints, these 144,000, these groups that are living through this, there is faith in Jesus, in Christ alone. It never changes. It's always been by faith. And then you see these three angels coming out with like just kind of some crazy warnings. So this first one says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead and it had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, every nation, every tribe, language, and people. An eternal gospel to proclaim. So what's crazy about this is this is the last call of grace. I grew up going to bars. I'm talking like real young, like fifth, sixth grade. Started early, you know what I mean? No, m my mom was a bartender. And so I would go, especially if she worked on the day shift, didn't get too rowdy, right? And, I, and all I wanted to do was shoot pool. And I'll tell you right now, I'll beat the socks off of anybody in here at some pool, okay? <laughs> just gonna tell you now. Like, don't, don't, don't get that up in your heart that you're gonna take, it's just, you're gonna get hurt, okay? but I loved shooting pool. But there would always be a last call. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I know that. I remember that vividly, those last calls. And you're like, are you really comparing last call in a bar to the last call of grace? Welcome to Calvary. You know what I mean? <laughs> Welcome to Calvary. But there is coming a day and the entire world is walking every day one step closer to the last call of grace that there will be a day that salvation will not, will no longer be available. 
And as a student pastor, and even now leading a church, we have to understand the true reality of that, that even us, each of us are walking one day closer to the last call of grace. I used to tell my students, this might be the last time you hear and you have an opportunity, an invitation to accept Christ as your Savior, that this might be the last call of grace in your life. And I'm not so naive to think that this could be your last call to grace here this morning, that the moment that you walk out those doors, you will never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed again. That could be your reality. could be our reality. Have you responded to the call of grace? Because this could be the last call for you. And so if you haven't, it's a beautiful morning to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. It is by faith in Christ alone for salvation. And I would encourage you, if that is you this morning, come up, talk to me, talk to Cliff, Sean, find someone, share that with someone. Hey, today, I answered that last call of grace. Now, the uniqueness about this last call, who's it by? It's an angel. And I've racked my brain. I've tried to think through just my kind of understanding of Scripture. I cannot find any other place where a non-human has proclaimed the gospel. So it's a very rare exception that we see a non-human proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And what we're seeing is the mercy of God, that he's not gonna leave it to the free will of man because you know there's times that the Holy Spirit leads us now, oh, should I say something, should I not? And we say no and we walk away with our tail between our legs. He's not leaving that to our free will, that that last call of grace is gonna be from him specifically. And he's gonna send his messenger out giving that last call. And so we see that grace and the mercy of Jesus in that. That it's, it's not a, like, I didn't even know it was closing time. I didn't even know it was last call. But nobody said anything to me. No, God himself will take matters into his own hands and give that last call. But we have to address the uniqueness of it. Why? Because the gospel was always meant to be proclaimed through us. Redeemed, restored, saved people who were once were lost and now we are found. That it was through wretches like us, people that lived in their own brokenness, their own filth, their own depravity of their sin, but we saw and tasted the goodness of God. And we have different stories. We come at it from different perspectives. Some of us grew up in church homes. Some of us didn't even have a home. Some of us had great godly parents. Other of us didn't. Some of us were prodigals, and we went after the world, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and then some. Some of us, we won't even take Tylenol. But every testimony matters to Jesus, that the gospel is meant to be proclaimed through us because there are some people that it's, it's a difficult for me to connect to. So if somebody is struggling with alcohol, that's a hard connection for me because I've, I've never had that struggle. And that's a, unique, uh, that's a unique situation in which the gospel can easily be poured into it. I've just, I can't look at somebody and say, hey, I've been there in that brokenness. But there's other areas, oh, I definitely can. 
I definitely can understand. And that's why we need the body of Christ. That there are some people in your life that I am the least effective person to share the gospel with. And the most effective person is you. And, and, and we, as the church, this is going to be broad brush, and, and it even happens here at Calvary, what happens when a church uh, kind of will grow a little bit, uh, you'll hear the verbiage, and you'll start to hear this, and this is actually a really bad warning light. You know, when we talk about serving, or we're talking about, you know, sharing the gospel, oh, yeah, there's somebody, I'm sure somebody will do that. Hey, we need some people in Calgary. It's, oh, yeah, I'm sure somebody will, yeah, look at all these people here. I'm sure somebody will go back there. Hey, we need this. Oh, yeah, I'm sure somebody will do that. Yeah, just FYI for you. Like, we are the somebodies. Like, we need to have the heart of Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. Because here's the thing. When God wants to move in and through us, that is his blessing unto us, that we get to share the gospel, that we get to serve him in ministry. That is a blessing that he has for us. Why do we want to offload that blessing to someone else? And who honestly is going to be far less effective because that was for you. But we want to offload that because, yeah, I'm busy. I got a lot of things going on. I can't be doing that. And we quench the spirits. But the gospel is meant to not stop at us. You know, we love the idea that we are saved and the blood of Jesus covers us and we walk in new life. But we also have to understand that the gospel is meant to flow through us that we are the lead trumpets of the gospel, playing forth, proclaiming forth the good news of Jesus. There is no plan B. It is our responsibility. It is our call and our command. That's why at the very end of the gospel of Matthew, what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples. You can't make a disciple without proclaiming the gospel. That... That is upon us as the church. And so we, collectively, as the church, not just Calvary, but I think the church, we can't offload this and just think, oh yeah, somebody will, somebody will, somebody will. No, 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 you are that somebody. Because again, I, I would be the most ineffective person to share the good news of Jesus in your sphere of influence. Most people put up, uh, you see this even in, in uh, once people find out I'm a pastor, oh, those are the most awkward, fun conversations, right? <laughs> you're just out in the community, you're trying to meet people, and it's great, and they're just being them, and I love it, right? Like, oh, do you ever get offended that somebody cusses around you? No. And they will, and then they're like, oh, right, bleep, 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 what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Sorry. I'm like, yeah, these virgin ears have never heard that. <laughs> I'm like, I was, I was way better than you at cussing. What are you talking about? I'm way more colorful, right? Get a little creativity in this guy. Come on. That's what we, you know, there's, there's that weird, but, but that's the beautiful part of the body of Christ is that every part is needed. And it's called for us that we need to continue calling out grace, understanding, yeah, there's a last call coming, but that's coming from the Lord. The part that convicts me is, when's my last call of grace? Not the one I've answered, but when will I get too...
bitter? When will my heart become too hardened that I cease to give the gospel in my own life? I'm hoping that this is my prayer right now on a Sunday morning here with you, that my last call of grace is my last breath of life. But how quickly we can be silenced and distracted and the cares of the world to choke out the word and the fresh work that God wants to do in and through us. And then we see the second angel rolling in. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We'll talk about that in chapter 18. Babylon really is just an organized rebellion against God being led by Satan in through the Antichrist. And we see that um, they kind of give her a personification of a woman. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's where we get the word fornication from. And what we see here is a spiritual fornication usually is tied with literal immorality. We see that in ministry all the time. These students would come up to me and they're like, man, I'm just really struggling with this sin. And they'd open it up. And my first question isn't about the sin issue that they're having. My first question out of the blocks is, well, how's your relationship with the Lord? Are you in the Word? Well... You know, like, I've just been busy and it's hard. Like, I don't understand all this and praying's weird to me. I don't know what the words to say. And really what we're asking for is, no, pastor, I want you to spoon feed me. I want a nice warm bottle. I want you to wrap me up, hold me like a sweet little baby and give me a warm bottle. (laughs) The awkwardness is that we should be feeding ourselves but we come to church, we come to youth group because we need the pastor to feed us because I don't want to cut my own meat, don't even want to do the little pincher grasp of a toddler. Nope, just spoon feed me, give me the airplane, give me the choo-choo train, fill my belly up and I'll be back in a week when I'm starving because I haven't fed myself. The bulk, the, the foundation of our life, our spiritual life should be us, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. If you come once a week for the word and that's all the word that you get, you're malnourished. And malnourished cause a failure to thrive. And there's a walking away and that will have real life implications in your life, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, absolutely. And so I encourage you, Don't allow the spiritual fornication where we have all these other idols that we are worshiping in our lives and think that we can sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it, you know, like some nice colored sprinkles and everything is gonna be fine. No, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the one that went to the cross. It is his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out for us. He is to be worshiped with our lives. And so I encourage you, where is your walk with the Lord? Because every time that I see a struggle in sin, the spiritual life is dying. Because think, we can judge each other by our fruits. We can't judge hearts. Can't see hearts. Only the Lord sees the heart. But we can't judge each other by our fruits. And so even for me, like if I start losing my joy for ministry and I start getting real snappy and mean and, and I'm bitter and I'm frustrated and I don't want to be around people, you know, there's a group of people in my life that are going to call me out on that. 
And especially, we, me and Cliff have talked about this. Like, he's, he's probably going to roll up, and he's not going to talk about the, the pressures of the ministry and the burdens that you carry. How's your walk? Because if you're in the Word, being led by the Holy Spirit, in that, we used to sing that song, in the secret and the quiet place that we commune with God. If you're there, what should be evident in our life? The fruit of the Spirit. Like, this is, this is how we fight this. I actually have it written on my Bible. It's on my side. So every time I open it, I'm seeing, this is how I fight my battles. I need that reminder because I can be real quick, real prone to run after my own thinking, my own ways of doing things. Now, this is how I fight my battles. And even the fun little sticker on the front of my Bible, it's a bear holding a pineapple. Don't take the pineapple too far, okay, people? <clears throat> I need, a, I need a sticker of an apple or something right there. <laughs> if you don't know, God bless you in your naivety. <laughs> Good night. If you do know, pray, come up for some repentance. But it says bear fruit because the purpose of the word of God is not head knowledge. The purpose of the word of God is that the fruit of the spirit would be increasing in my life that I'd be equipped and ready for every good work, that I would walk in obedience to Jesus. And so we have to understand what we believe affects how we behave. That if we are spiritually fornicating away from Jesus, that we're putting another God on the, on the throne of our hearts and we are trying to evict Jesus, or we're trying to get him to share that throne on our hearts. We're going to see it play out in our everyday lives and in not ways that Jesus wants for us. He wants us to walk in new life. And how can we accept Christ, see the new life that he provides for us, and run back to the old things that he died on the cross for? We have to walk in newness of life. And now we have this last third angel coming out, talking about if anyone worships the beast, its image receives the mark. This is how we know that if anybody receives the mark, that salvation will not be available to them. They've, they've put their lot in with the Antichrist. It says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, verse 10, poured out full strength in the cup of his anger. So the cup of God's wrath which he makes those under judgment drink. It's expressed more than a dozen times in Scripture. Psalm 75, 8 is a great verse to read that. It says he's going to drain it down to the dregs. Like to, down to the, the, you know, like if you have coffee and sometimes a few of the grounds get in the bottom of it and you never want to take that last sip or it's like, whew, you know, you get like half a spoon of like ground coffee. Like he's going to drain that cup to the very bottom. He's not going to withhold any of it. He's going to pour it all out, is what Psalm 75 is telling us. All are going to drink from this cup. Me, you, all will drink from this cup. Us, ourselves, or by proxy through Jesus. But the cup of God's wrath will be poured out. You will drink it, or it will be drank by proxy through Jesus, meaning he willingly took the cup of God's wrath that we deserved. And we got to think, well, how bad is the cup of God's wrath? Sobering thought, even Jesus asked for this cup to pass him. 
and we talk about the bittersweet of what the gospel is. Yes, we love the sweet new life, the grace, the mercy, the love of Jesus, absolutely. But the bitterness of what are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. The very thing that Jesus said, let this cup pass, but not my will be done. Let your will be done. And we are saved from experiencing the wrath of God. That's why Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians that the bride of Christ, the church, is not destined for the wrath of God. That's why we as the church will not walk through any aspect of the tribulation because the wrath of God was drank by Jesus for us. And when we put our faith and our trust in him, we as the church are not destined for the wrath of God. But the very end of this verse Talking about those that have received the mark, they will be tormented, not tortured, so it's self-inflicted with fire, sulfur, and here's the part, hold on, buckle up, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, who is Jesus. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about Lucifer really has, Satan has access to heaven, that he's in that courtroom scene, that courtroom battlefield scene. He's just accusing the brethren day and night. Yeah. Again, he's not golfing the back nine. He's not enjoying any of the amenities of heaven. He's there to accuse God, his throne, the brethren. And the whole time, as he's hurling insults of our sin, what do we see Jesus paid for? You're calling them out by their sin, but I know their name. And he's confessing our name before the Father. Amen. And there's going to be a glorious moment when he's going to be denied access. And there's going to be a party in heaven. But he says, but woe to you on earth. So in the same context, but flipped. Are you really saying, Pastor, that the presence of Jesus is going to be in hell? I'm not saying that. The Holy Spirit is saying that in verse 10, that he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the lamb. This shows that God is not absent from hell, but he is present in all his holiness, in his righteous judgment. And those who are in hell will wish that he was absent because that's the standard, the complete holiness and righteousness of God. He is what makes it holy and righteous. His presence is the very thing that defines that is hell, of being separated from him. That they're not going to look to him. There's going to be no ounce of his love. It is only the presence of his holy justice and wrath against sin. So it's wrong to say that hell will be devoid of the presence of God, but it will be without any aspect of his love. Hell is being eternally separated from the love of God. Because that's all death is, is separation. When I physically die, my soul spirit is going to separate from my body for a small period of time. And then, you know, that whole resurrection thing, it's going to happen to us as well. We're going to be reunited again. But spiritual death is to be separated. We think of death sometimes in the world as it's an end, a cessation. Death is just merely separation. But eternal death spiritual death is to be eternally separated from the love of God. That's why Paul in Romans 8, there's a verses 38, 39, he's talking about what can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, no height, nor depth, no, all these things can separate us from the love of God. 
We do not have to worry that we're going to fall into that. Why? Because of our faith in Jesus. But the presence of Jesus will be there. But no ounce of his love, only his holy justice and his wrath against sin. C.S. Lewis would say, you're talking about, because the idea of right and wrong, C.S. Lewis would say, you have to have some standard to know. Talked about lines. You got to have a ruler to be able to judge a crooked line. So how would that person in hell know this is what I deserve and there is a torment upon me and they will look up and see the holy, righteous presence of Christ and say, that's what I rejected. And so we think about hell and we hear the, the hell fire brimstone, the um, weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the darkness and we wonder, is that literal or is that figurative? Either way, I don't want to experience it. Because if it is literal, it doesn't sound fun. And if it's figurative, it's pointing to a true reality of what does it mean to be separated from the love of God? That's hell. And it says, and then there's this call in verse 12, for the endurance of the saints, those who to keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, the same for us as the church. There's a call unto us to endure and to keep the commandments and our faith in Jesus. See, our work for Jesus and his kingdom, it goes with us into heaven. That is the only thing that we can take to heaven with us as people. And to think about that glorious moment that you're gonna stand before Jesus in his presence, and then people are gonna walk up and say, I'm here because of you. Because there wasn't a last call of grace in your life that you were willing and obedient to share the good news of Jesus with me. That you just kept preaching and sharing and giving testimony, inviting people into relationship with Jesus. And I said yes, because you invited me. That's what we need to be seen as the church. And just briefly, we see the last few verses, 14 to 20 this harvest of the earth where we have Jesus coming through with a sickle, reaping the earth. In a couple weeks at the end of 16, we'll talk about Armageddon, not the Bruce Willis Armageddon, right? No Ben Affleck here, no Liv Tyler. Armageddon is actually eight stages. A lot of times we think it's just a singular battle. There's eight stages to Armageddon. It's almost a campaign. What we're seeing here in those verses at the end of 14 is stage number seven. Right? It's this triumphal entry because we know Jesus is going to go to Basra and he's going to protect the Jews and it's going to be this battle triumphal entry to the Mount of Olives that is 184 miles or biblically 1600 stadia. And in Joel 3 describes this trek from Basra to the Mount of Olives and they're going right before the Mount of Olives is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Right? We all knew that of course. Or it's the Kidron Valley. And why is that significant? Because Jesus has crossed over that valley one time in a very significant moment. That last week of his life when he's walking out of Jerusalem and he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, he steps over the Kidron Valley because they, the uh, Jews and the priests at the time would have been sacrificing all of the Passover lambs. And the area that they would do that near the temple, that blood would flow out of there and drain into the Kidron Valley. So as Jesus is going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
knowing that he's going to be arrested there and be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that his blood was going to be poured out, he steps over the blood of the Passover lambs, knowing that that soon will be my blood. But not year after year, but for all of sin and humanity. That valley is also called the Valley of Decision. And even though I've never been to Jerusalem, would love to go, any takers? We all stand in the valley of decision between Christ as our Lord, our God, to walk in obedience, to walk in surrender, submission to him, or we sit on the throne of our own hearts and we're our own gods. We all sit in the valley of decision. Will I walk and follow Jesus? Will I answer that last call of grace? Will I keep living my life for him? Or will I not? And every one of us is given that decision before us. And I encourage you, do not walk out of this facility without knowing that you have answered the call of grace for your life because it could be your last call. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We trust you, Lord. We thank you for just a beautiful opportunity to come together and just to hear your bride sing praises to you. What an encouragement, Lord. To see the faithfulness of who you are and how you have worked through this church for the years and years that Cliff was the pastor and the impact that you have made through that ministry. And Lord, you're still the same God that is using us in this community. And I pray that we as your bride, would be walking in obedience, that we would be in the fight for our purity for you. And Lord, if there is anyone here that has heard the call of grace upon them to turn, to repent from their sin, to turn to you in faith and to put their trust in you, Jesus, I pray that they would respond to that call of grace and give them a little bit more courage to come up and share what you have done in their heart to a staff, a pastor, whoever it would be, Lord. Put your hand upon them. Put your hand upon us. Lead us, guide us, that we would be your hands, your feet, your heart to this community, that we would continue to give the call of grace to the world around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...